Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Taylor in 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. You know, this month, my wife and I are celebrating our 12th wedding anniversary. So I was looking at some pictures uh, from our wedding from 12 years ago. And notice how good I look in that tuxedo from Leon Taylor. Not just me, but all my groomsmen as well. And so if you got a big formal event or a wedding this fall or maybe wedding next spring, think about our good friends over at Leon Taylor. Larry, Norm, Kim, and Judy would be happy to see you. I'm happy to make you look as good today as I did 12 years ago. Well, It'll almost look as good as me as 12 years ago. I'm just kidding. So we go by Leon Tailoring. They'll be happy to see you. 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Well, one election is in the bag, and we got another election coming up in less than a year. Yay. I'm so excited. You can see the smile on my face right now. And joining us, something we just want to talk about, uh, so to give us a preview of what we can expect this year, is our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson, my colleague uh, at the University of Indianapolis. So, uh, Dr. Wilson, always going to talk to you, my dear. It's always my pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, are you enjoying your break until 2024 gets started? or? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I know sometimes people lament, my goodness, we don't make it through one election before they start talking about the next. But I think we've been talking about 2024 since 2022, and right now it's 2023. So I don't even think there was a break. If anything, we had some serious overlap with elections. Now we just get to focus on the presidential that we have next year. <laughs> yeah, we got the, yeah, we got the presidential next year. We have a U.S. Senate race. The Senate's uh, up for grabs. Uh, we've got uh, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives up for grabs as well. Uh, so let's start with the big one, the presidential race. Uh, obviously, uh, the polling data right now does not favor uh, Joe Biden, but I always tell people polls are not predictions. They're snapshots in time. They merely tell you how the electorate feels on that day. Polls like yard signs. They don't vote. Now, with that said, uh, how are things looking for Joe Biden? <laughs> Well, as you said, they're not great. Uh, you know, a lot of the polling data, especially Gallup, is a great resource. Especially they provide polling data throughout one's administration, and they have data dating back to Truman when he was president. Um, you know, so Biden hovering around the 41 percent, which is okay, but obviously not enough to win you a majority of voters. So that part, I think, is really tricky. Obviously, a lot of international and national news pieces that are affecting how people feel about Biden and his performance. But I, I think the greater challenge is when you think about the question of Biden versus who, right? And, and that's the part we don't know. We, we have pretty strong indication as the incumbent, he has announced he's running again. Biden will very, very likely be the Democratic nominee, but who will represent the Republicans? And I, I think that is the real question mark, the real, um, the, the tricky challenge that we're looking at when you look at 2024 and obviously they've had three debates and obviously we have a front runner though he also obviously hasn't participated in those three debates um, I, I think that the matchups that i'm most interested in and some polling has indicated that nikki haley might be the most formidable republican competitor against joe biden but as you mentioned these are snapshots at a moment in time and this particular moment in time is still 12 months away from the election. So, of course, there's a lot of time and events, different things that can happen well before voters get to cast their ballots. How is Joe Biden comparing with his colleagues, with his predecessors, uh, whether it's Barack Obama, uh, George uh, W. Bush, or for that matter, Ronald Reagan? Because I want to say, if my memory serves you correctly, all those folks uh, in sort of their uh, the, the year before the, 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 their, their, their re-election efforts uh, were sort of in the same spot where Joe Biden was, but they all went on to win. Very much so. And I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because, again, I, I've used a lot of Gallup data, and they have this great resource. I am not a paid advertisement for them, though I would love to get a paycheck from them. But where you can actually compare uh, the presidents, again, going back to Truman. And if you look 
Generally speaking, um, Biden is where we would expect to see a president. And so that's where you can say 41 percent, not bad, not great, but not bad. I think the tricky thing, if you consider uh, looking at previous presidents, is what they were able to do, what events happened and what um, what they were able to make of them in the year before the election. And now Donald Trump didn't win re-election, so we could look at him as perhaps a warning sign, although there are a lot of other circumstances there. Barack Obama's approval was generally higher, um, and that's talking about the end of his first term going into his second, but Republicans writ large did very well during the middle part of the Obama era in terms of the Senate and uh, the House and state legislative races, too. So uh, when we take it into consideration as a whole, I certainly wouldn't write Joe Biden off. I think this could be a really exciting and competitive presidential race 12 months away from now. Um, but the 40, hovering around 41 percent, 41 percent is not a majority. And that's the part that has to give Republicans a lot of confidence. And I think that's also a part that Joe Biden wakes up to every morning thinking, what can he do to help move that needle, because he needs to inch it up more before next November. Our guest in the program today is our good friend, my colleague at the University of Annapolis, Dr. Laura Wilson, uh, talking about uh, 2024. Yes, we know it's still 24 elections, still a year away, but it'll be here uh, before you know it. So just just bear with us, folks, if you could. Uh, Dr. Wilson, uh, let's look at uh, sort of the Republican side of that uh, equation. Uh, you got, uh, I want to say, uh, Tim Scott, the, the most recent Republican to drop out as we record uh, mm-hmm. this conversation. But you still got you got Nikki Haley. You've got Ron DeSantis. Uh, you've got uh, some of the other folks uh, in there uh, in there as well. Uh, and obviously the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is Donald Trump, um, on that scale is also. Uh, if you're a Republican getting ready to run for president, what is your, what is your goal and focus right now? Well, I, I think you're looking at you know, it's two different candidates. If you're Donald Trump, you're in a different category. If you're anyone who's not Donald Trump, you are trying to find a way to appeal to enough voters to make yourself competitive against Donald Trump. He has handedly led in the polls. And consistently at that, even I think despite having so many challengers, uh, several of whom, if you think of someone like a Chris Christie, who are running just to beat Donald Trump. Right? They're very clearly the anti-Trump candidate. So for, for everybody else, it's trying to figure out a way you can appeal to the voting base uh, and what you can do either to cut into Trump's lead, but also to not just be the anti-Trump, to be a candidate that people are looking forward to and and excited about, and they want to vote for you, not just against somebody else. That's hard, and that's been the challenge. I think Ron DeSantis was seen a year ago as the natural um, next in line. He could be that person. He had a lot of attributes that Donald Trump had. Um, without some of maybe the baggage, he was but Trump he without being. He was, he was he was Trump without being Trump. Yes, yeah, and, but it turns out that the thing that makes Trump successful is being Trump because Ron DeSantis has had a campaign mired with challenges and just has not been able to capture the electorate, and get their attention, the hearts and minds of voters. And, and I think that's been the, the tricky thing with most of the candidates. I think uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had had come close. Certainly at the first debate, he came out uh, all guns, all cylinders firing. I'm not sure that the you know he's really benefited in the polls or really done that since. But for all the candidates who aren't Donald Trump, they have to be Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump is in a different category, and he has a tremendous amount of loyal supporters. He's obviously very controversial. He has a lot of legal challenges right now. But I, I think for him to reach 
beyond just his loyal base of supporters, right, because he leads in all the polls showing him compared to other Republican primary candidates. And then when you look at him versus Biden, right, it's much more competitive and much closer race. I think he needs to think of how he can reach out to other voters beyond his support, beyond the base of, of loyalists that he has. What can he do to reach beyond the Republican voters, right, and, and really capture that middle of the road? And I don't know that's his strategy right now, and I don't know that's his focus right now. But long term, after the primary is over, whichever candidate gets the nod, I, uh, you you have to be competing in that general election. And that's that tricky partisan pivot that every candidate does from the primary to the general every candidate that wins of course uh, but I, I think that is the the different strategy he's in a different in a category he's on a different field right now uh, but that's the strategy that donald trump will have to pursue our guest on the program today is my colleague from the university of Indianapolis, dr laura wilson uh talking about 2024 and the elections which are less than a year away but still be here folks uh before you know it uh dr wilson uh my question of the republican candidates uh taking on uh down trip whether it's once again nikki haley ron DeSantis, uh viva check ramaswamy chris christie uh and the rest uh what do they have to do uh to win because like i said you know we said once again Polls are not uh, predictions. They're merely snapshots in time. But, Dr. Wilson, you know as well as I do, uh, eventually the grades you got in the class is the grades you're going to get. <laughs> it is. In every successive poll, especially when you talk about the qualifications to make it to the debate stage, like polls matter. They, they very much do. I, I think certainly, as I said, differentiating themselves from Donald Trump, I think the, the candidates struggle right now to differentiate themselves from each other. And in having at this point three debates, we get a better sense as voters and analysts watching these debates where people stand on the nuanced issues and really which lane they're trying to pick. Um, I think that is obviously important. As we look in the primaries, though, not even polls will decide things. We'll actually get elections and caucuses. By the time you get Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, we just saw, of course, you mentioned earlier, Tim Scott drop out a few weeks ago. Mike Pence did. We're kind of looking who's going to be the next person. And those that are flailing in the polls that have consistently struggled to get any attention. And, of course, those who struggle to get funding, and those are intricately related, those are the candidates that are going to be on that kind of cusp on that bubble but we're shockingly we're only a few months away from iowa and things devolve really quickly from there once you get iowa new hampshire and south carolina those are just three caucus slash primaries that will will really tell us who's who's competing for the long run who's going to stay in it and who's going to make it and sometimes we see surprises from those primaries and, and the caucus where it might be a dark horse candidate who just hasn't been able to click yet, but they're working on it. They're implementing a strategy that, that is looking towards the primaries. They have to survive to get to the primaries, but then they're successful once they get there. I, I think that's quite possible when we're looking at this this array of candidates. Uh, is the fight uh, in the Republican primary uh, to be the to be the Donald Trump alternative? It's like, hey, look, folks. Yes, he's yes he's ahead in the polling, but uh, but he can't win a general election. I think it is, but the messaging has to be really careful because he is ahead in the polling. So what essentially, as a Republican presidential candidate who's not Donald Trump, you're trying to do is say, look, um, I know you like Donald Trump, but you would also like me to because I will be successful in general. And that's a tricky line to walk. As a candidate, you're basically telling people they shouldn't like who they like now, 
Because to get to the ultimate goal, their ultimate objective, of course, which is when the president CC got to win the general election, they have to pivot. They have to change in terms of what they want. And I, I think you see Haley. I think you see DeSantis. Ron Swamy is quite different. But I, I think you see some of the candidates walking that line as carefully as they can. But this is the challenge that Trump has always posed to the Republicans. And it's fascinating to watch it play out over, at this point, several election cycles, because you see it, it manifest in somewhat different ways, but always with the same outcome. The party is divided on Donald Trump. And until there's some sort of reconciliation, it doesn't have to be everybody agrees, but you do need a majority on whether or not they pursue him as their candidate, but they're able to find a way that he's appealing and electable by the mass, right, the mass electorate. Or if they ultimately say, you know what, no, we we got to go with somebody else, and, and they're able to do that, and they find someone, again, who's electable by the masses, until you have that moment. We didn't have that in 2020. Um, I, you did in 2016. Right? But until we have that moment, I don't, I don't see how the Republican Party comes out of this. And, and at the point of division, it has been – it's such a challenge based on how people feel about one one man and one candidate. Well, with all due respect, if you ever check Ramaswamy, reminds me of the music man in a purple suit. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. I'm just 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 put it out there. Uh, <laughs> our guest on the program today is our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson, the University of Indianapolis, talking about the 2024 uh, presidential race and what we can expect uh, going forward uh, over the course of the next year. Uh, if you're one thing, I've also noticed too, uh, Dr. Wilson. Yeah, with all of Donald Trump's legal problems, whether civil or criminal, it hasn't really changed his standing uh, with that Republican base of voters. Uh, what's going on there? Have they just sort of like, hey, you know what? This is all the you know the deep state, you know the the weaponized Justice Department. Even though Donald Trump basically said he'd do the same thing that that's being done to him. Or uh, my theory is that uh, some people are just so emotionally invested and emotionally attached to Donald Trump that to to do anything else would uh, was almost going to be an admission of being wrong. Both, actually. And and I think on one hand, this plays so well into Trump's narrative. It's brilliant, right? Because he says, I, I told you they were going to come after me and I told you they would say these things. And that's exactly what happened. So for especially the, the most loyal supporters, they see it as a reaffirmation. Like he had this conviction, this vision, and it was fulfilled. Like it's almost prophetic. But at the same time, I, I think there is also that concern or even maybe question and this could be very valid where you wonder like how much does that matter right and if it's already a candidate you love you're more likely psychologically to reinforce your allegiance right rather than to challenge it and so after so many of the questions in terms of these legal conundrums i I think you say no you're just dismissive of them writ large entirely and I do think that's part of what you see here. Um, it's not to say it hasn't swayed everyone. Certainly at this point, with every successive challenge that comes up, I, we would expect the smallest impact. And certainly even over the spring and summer, when initially uh, charges and indictments were announced, you saw Trump being advantaged in terms of polling. Because, again, I think it plays into his message so well. So though that advantage may eventually diminish I don't see it certainly harming him, in part because it plays in the narrative that he created and that his voters believe in. And I and I also think there is a part where it's like that's not what they care about. That's not what they value. That's not what they were interested in. It doesn't matter if it happened or if they do think it's true. Right? They're focused on the man as the candidate 
and their allegiance to him extends beyond any question of, of legal um, ethical wrongdoing. It's, it's funny you bring that up because uh, there's the, there's the obviously the, the campaign argument that Donald Trump is making, but again, there's also the legal argument. And my thing is like, if I was Donald Trump's lawyer, first of all, I'd be taking like you know Pepto Bismol and Alka Seltzer every single night before I went to bed. But number two, I'd like Mr. President, stop talking. You're not helping your legal case right now. Yes, and I I think that has been said several times, even by judges, although they care less about the legal case, just the facts. Um, you know, but that's what he does, and that's that's a large part of how he's been successful. It's obviously a large part of his controversy as well. So I, I, I think in one on one hand, you're asking him to be somebody who he is not, and that might be difficult. I also think he, on the other hand, would recognize the value in being true to himself and the, and the value it has to those especially loyal supporters. Our guest in the program today is our good friend, Dr. Laura Wilson of the University of Indianapolis, my colleague. We both teach in the School of Political Science, talking about uh, getting ready for 2024. Uh, Dr. Laura, I want to take a, take a step back here, not necessarily talk about Donald Trump, but uh, sort of Republican chances. Obviously, uh, we just had our 2023 midterm elections, and once again, uh, every election is sort of a, is sort of an issue within itself. But you had Ohio, uh, a very Republican state, uh, Republican governor, Republican statewide elected officials, Republican senators, uh, basically uh, put put reproductive rights, abortion on the ballot, and abortion won like uh, 57, 58 uh, percent. What is that a warning sign for Republicans that they could be in trouble uh, in 2024? It tells you, first of all, abortion is still very much a salient issue. And I know it feels like it's something I've talked nonstop about since Dobbs versus Jackson in June of last year. I think we'll be talking about it this time next year, too, because once you change the the law, the standing, like what's allowed, all of a sudden people who benefited or enjoyed or appreciated or stood on that side and now they're on the opposite side are going to take notice. They're going to rally. They're going to be really upset. And that's exactly what you see in Ohio. We saw that earlier in Kansas, right? I, I do think it signifies maybe a sweeping assumption on the part of the pro-life movement that because the Supreme Court weighed in their favor, um, that, that that's naturally reflective of all Americans, but it, it doesn't seem to be the case. It, it also, I think, does signify competitive challenges on this particular issue. So I'm I'm cautious to say whether or not this means Republicans will have a hard time next year round. I have been a resident of Ohio back when it was a real swing state, and it's a conservative state by all measures now. It's not purple. That is a red state. But I, I, I don't think it's necessarily the same to conflate abortion to be partisan challenges because you still have, when we look at the election next year, right, different issues, candidates, abortion will permeate, abortion will still be a part of the conversation, but it's separate when you're voting on it as issue one on the ballot for voters of Ohio this November versus when you're voting for governor, your senator, whomever else it is that appears on your ballot. So to me, it says abortion as an issue is alive and well and will continue to be an issue that voters care very strongly about. Uh, The state of Ohio, certainly, and this reaffirms what Kansas had done. There's a strong pro-choice, right, uh, a pro-abortion offering policy that, that resonates with folks. Um, and nothing is a foregone conclusion. Just because the Supreme Court has, says something doesn't mean that there aren't ways that the states, for example, um, can have influence over those policies, too. And it's funny you bring that up because a really good friend of mine went to law school together. She lives in Ohio these days, always voted Republican, but she voted in favor 
uh, of the change in the constitutional amendment because her theory was, I don't want a bunch of old white men telling me what to do with my body, uh, period. Right. And that, that, exactly. that, 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 that was her thought, and she didn't care about anything else. She, she, she considers herself pro-life and, and against abortion for her personally, but didn't want to tell anybody else what to do with their lives. Right. And, and I think and she wasn't voting on the candidates. And that's what's going to be different for the next ele- election cycle for Ohio voters specifically. I, I think when we separate issue from candidates, you see different responses, because in this case, Ohio voters were just voting on this constitutional change. Right? When they are looking at the candidates themselves, they'll be considering, of course, abortion, but a, a host of other issues. Um, and policies and stances, and I think that part is a, a critical difference there. Uh, also, too, uh, speaking of uh, midterm elections, what what do you say about uh, uh, Kentucky, uh, where Andy Bashir won uh, heartily, uh, 52-47, and also uh, the, the Virginia, Virginia uh, House of Delegates races, uh, where Democrats uh, kept the House and took the, uh, te- took the I want to say they, they kept the Senate but took the House. Yeah, well, so first of all, two big wins for Democrats, but I think they're a, it's a Oh, two different ones. In, in terms of Kentucky, uh, when you look at Andy Bashir, so he was an incumbent. He definitely benefited from an incumbency advantage, but also you know, was able to to use, in this case, we're talking about abortion, use that as an issue in his favor. And I think it's a tremendous success for Bashir personally, but also probably for the Democratic Party in Kentucky, because we typically affiliate Kentucky as being a red state. They have two very well-known and fairly prominent Republican senators. We don't usually think of Kentucky in in the same way that historically at one point it would have had much more Democratic dominance, not in the same way that it certainly does now. Um, And yet, you know, when you see Bashir win re-election, I think in large part because of incumbency, but also issues, right, clearly had a connection with Kentucky voters. If you look at Virginia, it's very interesting in their state legislature because for the Democrats to win there, it's not necessarily an issue about incumbency. And and Virginia is one of the few southern states that hasn't included more abortion restrictions since the Supreme Court gave states the ability to do that, saying it was a state-level decision, not necessarily a federal one. But I, I think... We used to look at Virginia, and even up till 2019, because I remember these conversations, we used to look at Virginia and say, like, oh, is this a bellwether? Is, is this how people are feeling looking up to the next election cycle? And I do think that the politics, the state level there are unique enough to the state that it, it doesn't tell me, oh, you know, Democrats are going to have a good year next year. They're going to have a very challenging year, especially if you think in terms of the Senate with the um, newly announced uh, retirement for West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, like that's not a guarantee Democrats will keep that. It's probably going to be very hard for Democrats to keep that, not knowing, of course, which candidates are going to run for West Virginia Senator. But, but there's all sorts of things that make me think, while that was a huge win, again, both of these for Democrats, that it doesn't necessarily bear out in terms of the politics or what we could look forward to. I think this is much more unique to the general concept that all politics is local. And, and even though there's a lot of nationalization in politics right now, I would say in these cases that it's probably a little bit more state-specific than we can nationalize. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I wanted to uh, focus briefly on the Mississippi uh, governor's race, because uh, Mississippi, a very red state, uh, but Tate Reeves only beat Brandon Presley by less than, less than four points, which I thought was yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with this one. And, and you were talking about, I think it's uh, somebody related to Elvis Presley. I know there's a connection there, but uh, with the candidates in Mississippi, after the flip in the 1980s, when they went from solidly Dixiecrat 
in the 60s, 70s, and then flipped to solidly Republican, really feels like a one-party dominated state. That kind of closer margin, right, it's, it's not a super close race, but a closer margin to me tells you a couple of things. Perhaps the party gained traction this election cycle. Perhaps the candidate worked in their favor, right? Uh, and, and it could also be a matter of the issues. And I can't say that I, I focus a lot on Mississippi politics, but I think seeing a close margin like that in a place where, as you said, we would expect the Republican to pretty handedly dominate. And that was an incumbent running for re-election, so you certainly have incumbency advantage there, too. But considering those factors, that highlights an example of a time when you lose, but you still kind of win. And of course, at the end of the day, if you don't actually win, it doesn't matter. But but I think for the party fortune and for questions of how you connect with voters, what messaging works, what are the issues they care about, right, which policies resonate, all those things, losing by a close margin tells you you did something right. Right. Um, and of course, you maybe didn't do enough or, or the right thing. Right. But you did something right. And I, I think there is going to be that kind of postmortem look. And in a certain way, right, this evaluation, like what happened in Mississippi? What what happened this election cycle that hasn't happened in recent gubernatorial election cycles? And what can the party learn? Or maybe what can the candidates learn in terms of what they could use going forward to future election cycles that could advantage them. Our guest on the program is Dr. Laura Wilson, uh, the University of Indianapolis, uh, my teaching colleague at the School of Political Science. Dr. Wilson, we've got a couple minutes left here. Uh, so what would you say uh, is the big takeaway from 2023? And if you're a candidate, uh, whether presidential, U.S. Senate, you know, Congress, or whatever, what is your big lesson for 2024? Man, it is, it's hard to come down to just one because if I'm looking at the local race, Or you can, you can use more hand. than one. That's fine, too. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> well, I, so I would say incumbency matters. Uh, and that's kind of unfortunate because if you're a candidate for 2024 and you're not the incumbent, you're like, well, that doesn't even apply. Then I, I this is going to be a problem. But I, I do think we saw, uh, at least in the Indianapolis mayor's race, in the Kentucky governor's race, and we mentioned the Mississippi governor's race, right? Certainly the incumbent still has advantages. And that's even amid... Well, we've had nearly a decade now, like a, the drain the swamp rhetoric and the questions about what value does having previous elected officials with experience, right? what, what value do they really bring? Those have been questions that have been pretty popular recently, but obviously having served in elected office still forebodes well for candidates. I would say that first and foremost. I also think we saw a, a, an election cycle where even though these were oftentimes local races and there were often there were in some cases statewide races too, we saw the impact of national issues. And next year is a national cycle, but if you're running for a statewide office and in Indiana, you know, I'm talking about gubernatorial races. Uh, obviously, we have our all of our state house races and half of our state senate races up. Even if they're not an issue that you would have jurisdiction over. I, I think the, in, the increasing expectation for voters is that you have an opinion on everything, regardless of whether or not it is in your foray, it is going to be in the purview of the job for which you are trying to be elected. And I, I do think we saw that in 2023. I suspect that's a trend that's going to continue. Of course, there'll be national um, elections, but for any of those positions that aren't national, I think you will have to issue, you have to answer to national issues too. And I, I think those are the two big takeaways, certainly from this cycle that I see. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground for 2023. And like I said, once again, looking forward to 2024. Our guest in the program today has been my good friend and colleague at the University of Annapolis, Dr. Laura Wilson. Uh, Dr. Laura, as always, my dear, thank you very, very much uh, for being with us. Uh, you enjoy yourself a good holiday season. We'll probably end up talking to you one more time before this year is up. But I, my spider I sense just so. tells me that. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you, Abdul. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.